0: Welcome back to 007x7, the podcast where we are investigating the James Bond films seven minutes at a time. I'm John Engel.
1: And I'm Mitch Bryan, and today we're looking at minutes 56 through 63. They begin with Bond starting the phonograph as he prepares to wait for Professor Dent and ends with his assuring Honey Rider on the beach that he won't steal her shells. In between, he kills Professor Dent and then, under cover of darkness and accompanied by Quarrel and Felix, heads to Crab Key by boat, continues onto the island with Quarrel, and in the morning sees honey coming out of the ocean. And our guest today is Dr. Lisa Funnell, Assistant Professor of Women and Gender Studies at the University of Oklahoma. She's the co-author of Geographies, Genders and Geopolitics of James Bond, the author of Warrior Women, Gender, Race and the Transnational Chinese Action Star, and the editor of For His Eyes Only, The Women of James Bond. Thanks for joining us today, Dr. Funnell.
2: Thank you, and can I just put a quick note in there? It's Associate Professor.
1: Oh, it is. Well, congratulations. Thank you. All right. That's great.
2: (laughs) I'm just very excited by it. So I was Uh, like, it is associate.
1: I know the feeling. (laughs) It happened to me two years ago. It's a good feeling to move up.
2: Right? I don't know what we got because of it, but we took that step. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I
1: got an extra online class. woo Yeah, Yeah. You're one of the preeminent Bond scholars in what I think is called like the second wave of Bond scholarship. Uh, How did you come to be a Bond fan. What Do you remember your first James Bond movie? or
2: I don't remember when I first started watching James Bond. I grew up with them. And so my dad would offer us a choice of any movie for uh, a Sunday night dinner in front of the television. It was a big ordeal for us. And we would just watch James Bond films. And I can't think of a time, I don't remember a time when James Bond wasn't part of my world, just like I don't remember a time when Star Wars or Indiana Jones was not part of my world. These are sort of cortex of, of my childhood and I'm very connected to the Roger Moore era. And so my taste in Bond tends to lean towards the witty, some of the puns, um, I like gadgets and gags, um, and, and I think I just connected with it. In terms of being a Bond scholar, I was doing my master's degree at Brock University in popular culture um, and I ended up connecting with Jim Leach. He was a professor. He's sort of part of like the first wave of scholars who were talking about James Bond in the novels and the films and he highly recommended to me to consider studying James Bond after I took his cultural theory class. So I did a master's thesis on the Bond girl phenomenon where I did this uh, quantitative content analysis of the women from 1970. to 2002 um, and that was really my first step into James Bond and I've continued studying it uh, uh, since.
1: The essay that you have in the uh, For His Eyes Only deals with um, the intersection of of Asian cinema, Asian characters and Bond films, is that right? Yes. So can we start with Miss Taro? Sure. Since we're still in her apartment? She's been carried away, but I would like to talk a little bit about sort of the Asian representation with her and and the the subsequent Bond girls.
2: Um, I would say the first thing is that Miss Tarot is played by a white actor in Yellow Face. Yellow Face is considered to be a racist antiquated form of representation where you have a white person portraying a caricature of an Asian person and so both Miss Tarot and Dr. No are white actors who are presented in yellow face and only sort of really secondary figures are cast um are, are Asian actors and specifically Chinese actors cast in that role. Um, so that's the first point about Miss Taro. I think the the second thing to recognize is that she's presented through a stereotype. Um, so stereotypes are these limited fixated forms of representation. And so they give us a generalizations about characters, but they tell us nothing substantive about the characters, right? Who they are, what they feel. Uh, they're sort of just these basic ideas. And when it comes to racial stereotypes, Frank Chin and Joseph Man Chan have argued that racial stereotypes, especially when it comes to Asian characters, come in two forms sort of a positive and a negative form, and both forms are defined in relation to the status quo, and the status quo in this case is the white man, James Bond so Miss Taro is one form of representation, the negative form a dragon lady, and so a dragon lady is sort of this seductive figure of the underworld, she uses sex and sexuality in order to take the white man away from his colonizing mission. And so in this film, she sleeps with James Bond. And I'll circle back to that in one second, because I have something to say about that. Um, And then there's the positive portrayal. And it's considered positive because it doesn't challenge the status quo. And so you have the Lotus Blossom figure who is servile and submissive to James Bond. And so if we look at the other Connery era Bond film, You Only Live Twice, both Aki and Kissy Suzuki fulfill that role where they talk about serving and servicing Bond in that way. When it comes to Ms. Tarot and sex with Bond in the scene that we've just sort of passed, I've I've come around to thinking about this. You know, she's presented as being this alluring character. And only in the last year have I been doing more work looking at consent, affirmative consent and its representation in Hollywood films. So I'm working on an anthology right now looking at, I think it's called Screening Me Too, and it's looking at rape culture in Hollywood. And I write an essay focusing in on the Connery era. So I've been thinking a lot about how sex and sexuality are presented in the Connery era. And when I look at Miss Tarot, the one thing that really strikes me is when she opens the door and Bond is there and she's surprised by him. She's not just surprised, but she looks scared. And so she's not only scared because James Bond did not die in the way that she expected, but she doesn't know what to do with him. And when we think about spy culture, sex plays a role in spy culture. And you have James Bond constantly saying, I don't get any pleasure from this. I do it for queen and country. And when I look at Miss Tarot, I start thinking about what options does she have? If she doesn't sleep with James Bond, she's probably going to die. James Bond will either kill her or Dr. No will kill her. And so she really doesn't have affirmative consent in that moment. And so it's something that I'm constantly thinking about and toying with, trying to understand the role that sex and sexuality play in spy culture, the lack of consent that is involved uh, in her representation through it. Is it simply expected because she's a woman that she would um, uh, uh, consent? Is it because she's an Asian woman and all these stereotypes surround uh, sex with the white man? Um, Or is it something else? So there's a lot to be said there just about the Connery era and specifically Dr. No starting it off.
1: And we really have to go all the way to what? uh, Probably Tomorrow Never Dies to get to um, uh, an Asian female character that has real agency and and can sort of call the shots in a way?
2: Absolutely. and. If you've ever listened to me talk about Tomorrow Never Dies, you will know that I love Michelle Yeoh. Michelle Yeoh is on the cover of my Warrior Women book. Her performance in Tomorrow Never Dies is the reason why I did a dissertation and wrote a book on Chinese warrior women. Uh, She's technically is only in about half of the movie, Uh, She's sort of peppered in at the beginning. uh, And then she's really there in a concentrated form at the end. To me, she outfights Bond. She outshines Bond in every scene that that they share. She does her own fight work. She does most of her own stunts. She's capable. She's presented as being a more competent agent. She has all the spy gadgets. He's the butt of the joke. The only issue that I have with her representation has to do at the end. The idea that somehow she gets tied up. Up and thrown underwater, <laughs> and Bond has to rescue her. And, you know, rescuing her is their first kiss because he's giving her this life saving mouth to mouth resuscitation. I get that it's a Bond film, but I guess as somebody who watches these movies a lot, studies women in action, yeah. I mean, she could be doing something like concrete to help even if it's like on the side without having her disappear and I sort of liken that to the Kingsman film where the true Kingsman is actually a woman but then she's sent into space to do something with a balloon and she's totally gone from the climax and every time I see that film I just I get so angry inside where I'm like she can also fight it won't take anything (laughs) away from the lead male character um but I definitely am a fan of Michelle Yeoh and the fact that she is just not as sexualized in that film. She's respected for what she brings to the, to the table as a hero and fans loved her because of that. People love the fact that we, that we, that we can still talk about this film and we can connect with this film where people suggest having a spin spinoff, which I would a hundred percent be behind. And so I think that that goes to show that having, um, Strong, competent, capable women and specifically Asian women on screen is something that is not only palatable to audiences, but it's something that's preferred.
1: Yeah, I think it's interesting how that the tradition of female warriors in Chinese culture, you know, is just like miles ahead of yes. of, of of Western action films, of Japanese action films. I mean, it's just it's just built into to the culture. And you have. Yeah. some Yeah.
2: And they have a tradition called, I'm probably saying it wrong, the wuxia pen. And these are these chivalrous swordplay narratives. And there was a literary tradition before there was a cinematic tradition. And in my book, Warrior Women, oh, I'm just excited. I never get to talk about Chinese warrior women. So this is just like, I'm getting butterflies inside. Um, I was able to really trace, the goal of that book is to actually trace the history of Hong Kong cinema through Chinese action women and not say men. And to really dig into what was going on in the 60s, the 70s, uh, with the wuxia pen coming to the forefront, and then kung fu films overtaking them. But kung fu is a masculine uh, a genre, and so women were pushed to the periphery. And then seeing uh, how women uh, came through the girls with guns phase, and that's really where Michelle Yo came to the forefront. Uh, she was part of this tradition of women who could fight, but were also capable and competent with weaponry. And if you look at her career, um, she got married at the end of the 80s, got divorced, came back to action filmmaking and really became this transnational superstar, somebody who became known for fighting alongside the best men in Hong Kong. She fought alongside Jackie Chan, Jet Li, Donnie Yen. She held her own as being sort of the quintessential martial arts partner. And she wasn't sexualized or fetishized in those roles either. She would be presented in Jackie Chan's outtake reels. And she was just this, this amazing um. Both athlete and performer, and uh, I think people just gravitated towards her, her because of that. So to see her um, get this type of exposure um, in in 1997 is is really an amazing thing.
1: And now she's on Star Trek.
2: And now she's on Star Trek, yeah. and she uh, I think is having you know uh, even a higher and higher profile and being respected also for the great actor. Uh, that she is yeah. so it's just it's great to see it in my opinion and, and if I have to put a plug or a push out there I think that it's really important when we talk about having diversity in film that we make sure that we talk about it being true diversity I want to see stronger black characters in film but I always ask where are my Asians at like where are they in the film <laughs> yeah. because I look at current Bond films I'll look at the background of MI6 and I'm like, wait a second, where are the Asian people, right? <laughs> if yeah. I look at the demographics of the UK, why why aren't they being represented? So even in these sort of the casting for these um, non-named roles, just sort of these background extras and figures, it matters who we see, let alone it matters who are occupying sort of those uh, main and supporting roles in, in these films.
0: I wanted to go back to the, the scene with... Miss Taro yeah. and Bond and their actual sexual encounter, and talk about that for just a little yeah. bit more, because I want to flip it over to Bond for a second, and in the context of consent, um, where you said, "Well, Miss Taro, she's basically stuck between a rock and a hard place. She's going to have to have sex with him yeah. or die." That's only because Bond wants to have sex with her, mm-hmm. right? He doesn't really need to, and, and and you mentioned, you know, Bond's always saying. I do this for queen and country. I don't think he has to do this for queen and country. This is him taking advantage of a situation. I, we brought this up last week when we were talking yep. about it. He could certainly say, hey, I'm." we could skip right to the con- conversation about dinner. And he could say, hey, I'm hungry. Uh, sure, I'll make you a Chinese dinner. That kills the time. Both of them need to kill time is the idea uh, as far as the temporal idea of the sexual encounter. But it doesn't really have to be a sexual encounter, right? I
2: agree. So yeah. she...
0: She she could have been spared that um, that issue that being stuck between a rock and a hard place issue. Except Bond saw it as an adv- as a place to take the uh, an opportunity to have sex with a woman who was uh, he knew he had under his thumb. So I don't know. I just think we have to classify his action as it is. This is certainly not one of those situations where it's for queen and country. I think he's actually. I can do this. So, so I'm the gonna filmmakers
1: are offering it as a sadistic pleasure, really, for the for the male right. audience, I guess.
2: Yeah, and I think just to support this claim, I think Thunderball is a really good example of another Connery-era film early in the franchise where it happens where and and, and you're probably going to get to this in your podcast eventually um, but where Bond is uh, relaxing at Shrublands and it's this spa, this retreat, he's not on a mission and he's sexually harassing the nurse yeah. and when there's um, uh, somebody tries to kill him and she thinks that it's her fault and she's apologizing, he could have said, no, it's not your fault. Instead, he turns it to his quote unquote advantage, takes advantage of the situation and coerces her into having sex with him. And that's not necessary. That is not for queen, not for country, not for mission. That is for bond. And so there are these instances where I think the question does get raised, why is it necessary to, to, represent this? Is it necessary to represent this? And does this make us think more of bond? Because to me, when I watch it into my students, when we cover these films, they sit there and they're like, isn't he supposed to be like a magnet? Like women are like a moth to a flame towards him. They're like, he's using all these techniques and it's making him come across as being very predatory. And my students do term Sean Connery as being the quote unquote rapey bond where, and they, they use that as I'm disturbed when they utilize that as a descriptor in general, let alone the fact that that is how they're talking in their own circles about the, the, this type of conduct. And so I think it it opens the question of whether or not it was considered, it it was, it was shown in films at the time, you know, people sort of chalk it up. It was like a moment of the time it was never okay even though it might be be deemed a product of the time it just doesn't it doesn't feel right
1: yeah and i think that's an addition that we can lay squarely at the feet of the filmmakers because for all of the terrible things that ian fleming may have done in his books that trope is not one that you can find anywhere in the books in fact the bad girl that shows up and has to be ultimately dispensed with before he gets to the good girl that's a total creation of the movies that that doesn't happen in the books
2: mm-hmm. I will say though there are some. Questionable things that do happen in the novels. Oh, um, no, the
1: novels are terrible. I'm just not, <laughs> I'm just, I'm just gonna, I'm like, just <laughs> cutting him a break on that one for uh, this one
2: issue. Oh. I, was, I, was like, I was like, well, there's like,
1: no, no, things, no, but. no. It's just that that's the, the, oh, the yeah. that's the one thing of yeah. all the stuff, you know, in the movies that there's no corollary really in the book, except for, you know, obviously that there's, there are lines where there seems to be a rape fantasy thing that goes on in Bond's head that's going on in Fleming's head.
0: Mm-hmm. Um,
1: you know, casino royale and quote, you know, what the, the tang of rape or whatever the line is. But this, this whole like true manipulation of these women for, for predatory sexual reasons seems to me to be something that the filmmakers are on top of.
2: And I think, you know, the goal here in terms of the films is to populate the films with more women and to add more sex and sexuality to them. But I think that there's a way of doing it where there's a lot of consent involved versus some of the, these other tactics where, In retrospect, now we're sitting there questioning what were they thinking and, you know, how is this appropriate?
0: I did want to point out that um, prior to him sitting down and awaiting Dent, we get a third scene uh, pretty much from the same, roughly the same camera angle of Bond prepping a room like it's it's getting oh, almost right, redundant yeah. now. like how many times have we seen it from this angle where he is walking around a room in a one shot mostly i mean earlier we got some close ups of slobbery hairs and so forth but we have this high angle of him prepping a room again and it's and again this is like where later we get these spy pleasures from gadgets here it's Look how he's going to manipulate a room. <laughs> that's his spy. That's his spy craft. I think they're really relying on that a lot in this movie. And we're about, what, well, we're not quite an hour in and we've already seen it three times. It's kind of interesting to me. I just wanted to point out that that's, I don't think we get it again. I think this is the last time. But I
2: kind of like it though. I, I think, I like the idea of Bond doing something spy oriented, that it's not just a whole bunch of shooting and kicking, that it's really about, um, knowing your surroundings and utilizing it to your advantage. And so I feel as though what the gadgets then do, it's not just the gadgets being awesome. Cause I want a jetpack, Okay. Like some of the, the gadgets are amazing, <laughs> but it's how he uses them in situations. So it's not just about brawn. It's about mixing sort of brains with brawn. So I think this is sort of like a precursor to all of that, but I think something to point out about the bed. Um, Miss Taro would be sleeping with Bond in that bed. If you want to talk about the disposability mm-hmm. of women and specifically Miss Taro, it's the fact that she probably would have been killed in the process. So no matter what she would have done in this situation, she was probably going to be destined to die <laughs> um, if she had followed through on their collective mission. So, I mean, even that in and of itself is, is quite a brutal concept, but I think it gets overshadowed by Bond's killing of Professor Dent after.
0: I, I do think that her uh, possible disposal had she been in the bed is also a product of dense cowardice. Mm-hmm. I think he he's not he's not the bravest of killers. He's open a door and shooting some shots. I mean we don't see his face but I can almost envision him like turning his face the other way <laughs> while he was shooting those shots into the bed, you know. So to him uh he's not going to risk getting too close to Bond uh, in this situation. So he's going to stand in the doorway and if she gets shot, she gets shot and I think that's just cowardice. Mm-hmm. it doesn't negate what you're saying it just adds a little bit more to the character of dent that we um we know he's not in his element here really having to do this and it's kind of a strange thing to send him to do this i I would think dr no might have somebody better for this but um i don't know how much he's in the loop between taro and and dent i don't know how much dr no is in the loop with what's going on in this particular evening but then it's not not your best assassin. Is all I'm saying,
2: <laughs> probably not somebody I would send to go kill someone. <laughs>
1: the, sadly, right. the three blind mice have already died in a fiery car crash, so we can't use them anymore. So, oh, they're short. They are on staff short on right staff, right now. staff <laughs> right now. That's
0: true. That's true. Well, let's. I want to talk about it real quick before we move past it. I do appreciate that Bond is playing solitaire. Yes. Uh, during this, and here's why. It's always kind of bothered me. I not not really really bothered me, but it's always been kind of a thing where the killer is just sitting in the dark room waiting for someone to get home, and they're just sitting there the whole time. And I'm like, how? I'm supposed to think this guy is sitting here in the dark, just staring forward for five hours. I kind of appreciate that a guy thinks forward, thinks ahead to kill some time. Like, I'm going to bring a deck of cards with me, because I know I might have to sit in this room, but I can think about how many times can you think of the uh, cold-hearted assassin guy who just sits in the dark room waiting? Yeah, I don't know. I, I like that Bond has a has a, a hobby. <laughs> Does he cheat at solitaire, or do you think he's willing to accept defeat? It looks like he's playing a pretty bad game of solitaire. <laughs> but I looked, I looked very close. Now, because of because of my grandmother, because of my grandmother, I know a thing or two about solitaire, and uh, I took a close look at those cards, and he's not doing so good. Uh, <laughs> I just want to say that. So I think you know he's much better at baccarat than uh, than solitaire. I think. Of solitaire is no—it's not a skill game at all.
2: That's funny, <laughs> but I, you raise a really good point. I mean, if you were to put me in a dark room for five hours and then just walk in, I would probably be asleep. And so, how do you stay? Yeah alert because even in the novels the novels are all about like bond being alert and so he takes a cold shower and he's got all of these tricks and i like the fact that there is this notion that you have to be on guard and you have to be engaged and so playing solitaire playing it poorly uh, or playing it well maybe if he's playing it well he'd be too distracted so maybe this is also part of the (laughs) trick just keeping things moving but i do appreciate like you said the fact that not only do cards and games Play a role in the bond franchise in a general sense but it might actually be a a a sort of a spy tactic or spy tool to keep him uh being at his best so i think it's a really important point to make
0: i think well you took it a step further than me i didn't think about it as mental just mental engagement would be important there because you're right you could drift off pretty easily and not be prepared when somebody came in so having something to mentally engage you with the gun with the gun within your sight even so he's got the gun right there where he's he sees it the entire time he's playing cards. So as soon as he hears that noise, he's ready to grab it. That's just uh, that's practical reason to be playing. I was just thinking about killing time. It's definitely
1: an instance where this bond, the movie bond, is better than the book bond because certainly a little bit later in Doctor No, the book. James Bond is drinking heavily before he's going on his mission. <laughs> you know, he takes out a pint of Canadian yeah. Club blended rye, and then later he picked up the bottle and looked at it. He had drunk a quarter of it. He poured another big slug into his glass and added some ice. What was he drinking for? Because of the thirty miles of Black Sea he had to cross tonight? Because he was going into the unknown? Because of Doctor No? So yeah, I mean, the movie Bond. Maybe much it's because, more because on he knows
0: he right knows he's going to have to get in a few uh, a little shut eye when he gets there. So he wants to be—he wants to be kind of groggy. <laughs> That's something I might do. So we—I guess we've gotten past. So we're past Dent shooting the pillows, six shots into the pillows, and uh, and Bond. So Bond has the jump on him.
1: And apparently, the sensors had a real problem after they had their conversation. And Bond says how he figured this out with the radioactivity, not not reporting that the rocks were radioactive. Uh, you know, after Dent makes his move, mm-hmm. uh, and pulls the trigger with only a click of the gun bond says that he's had his six now we know that it's a gun that really has seven bullets but we're not going to talk about that um, and cause everybody <laughs> else does uh, and bond doesn't have his real gun he's got a different gun but he shoots him and um, apparently he puts two into him right he shoots him once he falls he puts a second one in and I guess they said that originally he, he basically shot him like three more times and the censors said, no, 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 you can't do that. And so they had to cut it back to only two shots.
0: Well, I got a question. I mean, maybe here's, here's me asking dumb questions. I do this all the time where I, I feel like I'm supposed to just agree with what's happening on the screens. And sometimes it just doesn't make sense to me. Why does he shoot him? I kind of don't understand. He asks him a question, something he wants the answer to. Did, does not answer that question. He says it won't matter because you're going to be dead. And he grabs the gun. Why doesn't Bond make him answer the question? I don't understand why he shoots him right here. Isn't there? A, he just had a car come take somebody away, put him in custody. He could do that. I, I, I don't understand why he kills him, Mitch. Can you clarify this for me? I cannot clarify that for you. Okay. Dr. Funnel, can you clarify this for uh, us?
2: Well, I would say <laughs> that there might be a gender component to this. Um, where James Bond has a license to kill, but he typically doesn't use it towards women, um, and especially not in close to close contact, like like up close and personal contact until like the Brosnan era. Usually it's a henchperson or uh, the villain who ends up killing off villainous women, whether it's accidental or on purpose. Um because oftentimes violence depicted against women, uh, might be considered, uh, to be a factor in their victimization. So he would side with the women and not with the, the killer. Uh, so that might be a reason why one lives in this case and one dies. Um, but I also, I, I actually kind of liked the scene because you see bond. I mean, I think we have this idea of who he is and what he does, but he is there to take out, you know, a target on the way to Dr. No. Um, and, this guy came for him. And so he came for the guy and there was no emotion, no remorse. I'd like to see what his face looked like or how the extra three shots would have, would have looked. Um, because I thought Bond gave off that impression. Like I, I, I work for queen and country and I get to make these decisions about who lives and, and who dies. And that's something I'm entitled to do since people, you know, in, you know, on, um, are they in Jamaica here? Yeah, Thomas? yeah. During Jamaica, mm-hmm. yeah. Um, since, you know, our, our, our unit here in Jamaica got killed and they were got killed um, in terms of, of, of this man's hands. And maybe this is sort of like a parallel with even like Spectre. My favorite part about Spectre is the R, the revenge <laughs> component. I love you have a villainous organization and like revenge <laughs> is like one of the big goals of them. But in many ways, this is personal for Bond. One of their own was taken out. Two of their own uh, were taken out and- Maybe it's just about evening that playing field.
0: That That's a really good exp- As soon as you started getting into the revenge aspect, I went, okay, <laughs> now I get it. Because, because that makes sense. That is something that he might do. He might, I mean, the, if you're an MI6, you might send messages from time to time. This guy was responsible, even if indirectly, for the death of one of our own. This is what happens to people that do that. And... The question, you know, my question of he asked a question he wants to answer to. Well, Miss Taro can answer that question. She is in custody. So the the female character can be interrogated, imprisoned, however they end up dealing with her. They can get their answers from her uh, easier maybe than Dent. And who knows if Dent's going to let himself live. Like that, this is one of those situations where, well, he, Dr. No's going to kill me anyway, which is basically what happens here. He takes a very big risk to try to save himself here and it doesn't work out for him. But yeah, I think you're right. That's good. That's a good explanation. Bond is, uh, he's evening the field a little bit. So there we go. Good. Yay. Something that didn't make sense to me before makes sense. That hasn't happened yet. <laughs> I, don't think. I think for the most part, these little things that I kind of see as I don't want to say plot holes. They're not plot holes, but, uh, Things that seem incongruous to me have usually gone unanswered. We haven't been able to figure them out
1: before. Well, there is also something that's just demonstrable. They have to show James Bond yeah. killing somebody. He hasn't yet. And so that's also part of just sort of demonstrating who James Bond is at this point. But um,
0: Right. He's been present for a suicide. He, he averted an attempted assassination that ended in death. But this is the first time he's actually had a direct hand in it. Killed yeah, the that's hell good. out of a spider. Really, really. Oh well that's that true. <laughs> that uh, was so.
1: foreshadowing. We know he's gonna go after him several times. Bang, bang, bang. Well,
0: so. Well, thankfully, they didn't Mickey Mouse the gunshots.
2: (laughs) So do you think, now that you mentioned the spider, I've never thought of this before, Professor Dent, the way that he looks, the way that he's costumed, his clothing kind of hangs off of him. The spider is dressed in all black. He's dressed in all white. He wears white shoes. I can't, can't get over the white shoes. And he sort of like is creeping in. Do you think this is sort of just likening it like he's sort of the spider that needed to be taken out? So just like Bond takes out the spider that's creeping in on him when he's sleeping he's ready for the human spider that's trying to creep in on him and kill him when he's sleeping yeah. it could be a parallel
1: i think so for sure i even think that the lair where he goes to pick up the spider the ken adams set with those crisscross uh-huh. lines is like a spider web so yeah there seems to be something pretty pretty insecty or arachnidy. About Professor Dent, and, and, and since you
2: brought up Ken Adam, can I just say I love his set designs for James Bond. I know we're not talking about it in this in on this podcast, but I think that that's a brilliant set design, and I love the way that it sort of connects the the um, the the spider and and Dent possibly being a spider in his own cage with Doctor No sort of being his sort of captor. Like I, I think it's all brilliant the way that it's visualized. So Ken Adam.
1: Well, and even Miss Taro's apartment, I think, is is just gorgeous in terms of all of the you know Asian accents Mm -hmm. and the way that he builds this this space, you know, um, that indicates who she is, cliche or not. Uh, He's he's yeah he's so important to these movies, and he's fortunate that Sid Kane, the art director, was so in sync Mm -hmm. with him. Mm -hmm. So when Ken Adam couldn't do one of the movies, Sid Kane would do a pretty good Ken Adam light version of design you know
0: Oh, mitch i did want to say you know since we were on the topic of the spider again i believe that the fact that um dan only makes it into the doorway even with a gun in hand as far as he'll go is that doorway to shoot bond i think that proves my theory that he never entered the room with the spider i think that um we had this uh, uh dr Funnel. we had this uh discussion about how far he went in the room with the spider earlier like how what did he do and my theory was that he just put it in the open window (laughs) because he was too afraid to enter the room (laughs) Uh, and i think i think i'm vindicated here he wouldn't even go all the way into the room with a gun so uh, I think he definitely didn't go into the room with the spider. So I'm just saying, I, I think that I, <laughs> I was wouldn't right. I would go about into
2: that. the room with the spider. So I mean, I'm with you <laughs> on this one. I would be like, "Here you go, at the door. <laughs> I'm leaving."
0: Yeah, just shove it into the window and, and take off yeah. running. Hope for the best.
1: <laughs> well, shall we? Um, shall we go to the marina? Sure. And Bond arriving to find Felix and Quarrel waiting for him. Apparently, they've been waiting a long time. Felix isn't real happy about this. Uh,
0: Felix is is all but crossed his arms and tapping his foot on the dock, (laughs) uh, impatiently, like, where you been? So Felix is dressed for the night
1: mission. uh, And in Dr. No, the book, Fleming goes to points out that Bond fitted himself out with cheap black canvas jeans and a dark blue shirt, rope-soled shoes. James Bond is wearing beautiful sky blue matching ensemble. (laughs) Uh, uh, And I wanted to talk about the clothes a little bit. And also Quarrel. Quarrel has not changed clothes since the beginning of the movie. Um. Um, And I'm a little distressed by that. Especially that really the red shirt. He's as bad as James Bond with the bright blue. What do we think about um, how everyone is dressed here? And I I wanted to preface it with this. I read an interview recently with the costume designer of uh, Skyfall. And she puts so much thought into how to dress Bond and what everything means. And it's kind of funny because I don't get that sense in this scene that there's been a lot of thought put into uh, James Bond besides maybe just the aesthetic of blue. Unless yeah. it's some kind of magic camouflage where if you're looking up at him, he disappears into the blue sky or
0: something. But um, Right. Well, th- like what do think you make of at this? Least... Well, even if they want him to have the sky blue ensemble the next day the least you could do is gold finger it a little bit, have him wear some, you know, have him wear something he can unzip and take off, just make it tactically feasible in some way. But I don't, that's it. I think you hit the nail on the head. It's just an aesthetic choice and it doesn't have, it doesn't make much sense. He's not a very smart spy in this particular case.
1: But the issue of coral is trickier. I, I think yeah, Lisa, we can talk more to, about Lisa. That. Do you want to speak to uh, that?
2: Can I, I'll, I'll bring up a theory about the blue and then I got stuff to say about the red shirt. Um, Maybe the blue I feel as though they are they are costuming bond for the scene for the next day, they're not costuming necessarily him to do sort of the nighttime spy work. He's there to be sort of nice and beautiful in the morning because he's going to meet you know this 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 beautiful woman. But I think the blue sort of speaks to him being a naval commander, um, his association with the water, and of course you know the singing siren who comes out of the water. I think there's a lot of imagery going on there that deals with sort of the sea and who can command the sea, and women are associated with water and femininity and Bond, of course, his uniform is associated with being able to master those Cs. In terms of the red shirt, it's something that I've also noticed, too. Everybody else gets a change of clothes somewhere except for Quarrel. And I can't help but think that it is quite racist in terms of his representation. Uh, That I don't know if it's this idea that we just wouldn't know who he is if he changed his shirt, which I think is a problematic um, um, assumption that is being made. But it is a very sort of red visible. Um uh target. Like it's not a color that is covert in any way, shape, or form. You can always pick him out on a screen. Um, and so I I think that it is problematic that it's the same color and it's something that he had time to go change. They were waiting there for a long time. He could have easily changed into something else. Does he not? And then there's also class-based notion. Does he not own another shirt? You know, what is the film trying to say? Is there a class-based issue? Because James Bond is sort of, oh, um, what does Quirrell call him? does he call it captain, captain yeah, right? Cap, Is cap, there a captain, difference yeah. between Google. the two of them in terms of their rank and socioeconomic and class-based status? Um, so yeah, I've always found it to be problematic um, uh, uh, in the least. <laughs> well, it's, John had had a funny. theory
1: earlier about when, when Bond goes to talk to Quarrel and Felix and make their plans, and John pointed out that there's no reason that Bond couldn't have simply had that conversation with Quarrel, but somehow having Felix there, uh, one wonders if there's some patronizing attitude that, you know, it's it's too complicated for quarrel, right? you got to have a, another white guy there to, to help sp- explain this and balance it out.
0: Yeah, I feel like his character went from being the streetwise, uh, very helpful ally at the beginning. You, you think, well, he's pretty cool under fire with Bond. He's, at, at first, you know, he he's able to, you know... Play a little bit of a mind game with them, and then they play the little trick on him and that's fine. But then it's like, well, Quarrel, he's the man. He knows everybody. He's the guy that they're asking when they're sitting around at Pussfellers Club, he's asking questions of Quarrel. I want information from you. Then suddenly in that scene, it's like, okay, why isn't Bond talking to Quarrel about this? Why is Felix even here? And then in this scene it's escalating. Every it seems like every scene that Quarrel's in is kind of escalating his lack of value and then and recharacterizing him. Suddenly now he's like a rummy. Like, I didn't, I mean, I've seen him drink, but he was drinking with everybody else. Everybody's drinking. Now, suddenly, we're making jokes about how much rum he drinks. And I, is that what we, I, to jump ahead a little bit, is that what he's drinking at the end when we last see him in this block of minutes? He picks up that big jug and bug eyes and all that stuff that's really disturbing to me. Yeah,
1: I think that he's, he's it, they're saying he's a rummy now. And that's why Felix says, if you see the dragon, breathe on him. And so there's something yeah. really contemptuous Um, and patronizing that the filmmakers are starting to do with this character.
0: Right. It's all of a sudden he's basically Walter Brennan from To Have and Have Not, right? He's just this like, suddenly he's this drunken guy. Well, we'll take him along because he's the only one that knows how to get there. And that is not the, that's not the feeling I had about him earlier in the film. And it just seems like they shifted gears in a weird way here. I think that speaks, you know, to, to bring it back, I think that speaks to why he has just doesn't change his clothes. He's just an old rummy, just smells the high heaven and, you know, I just get that feeling all of a sudden, and it's it's unfortunate. And I think
2: it's really troublesome because you have Bond, you know, a British man, and you have Felix Leiter, an American both of them white men coming into Jamaica and it's the two of them who are dealing with the logistics, who are talking strategy. And even Bond puts himself above above Lighter, even though they're supposed to be, they kind of look similar. They have, you know, similar um, uh, sort of roles in their government, but Bond's the one who is still barking orders and tells Lighter, like, you better bring your um your navy or your seals or i think it was your your navy and so your marines yeah yeah. your marines there you go i was gonna get around to that eventually um so bond (laughs) still is showing like he has the intellect and um that what the united states brings is is the resources but still the two men are on similar footing whereas quarrel takes up at least in my mind a servile role where he's the one who's doing the physical labor. He's the one who's doing sort of the grunt work and is, is doing all like he's spotting and looking out for who's to come while Bond gets to go and flirt with the woman, right? And he's just considered and represented as being a whole step below Bond. And so what is the significance of having you know, uh, British and American men doing this and having the locals just be subjugated to them and put in that type of, of position. What are the optics of it? What is the significance of representing it in that way?
1: And it's just going to get worse,
2: uh-huh.
1: <laughs> <laughs> you know, That's which I think is really yeah. um, it's really weird. I also think that Bond doesn't treat him particularly well. Mm-mm. You know, I mean, Bond really yeah. like orders him around and says, "I'm going to go sleep. You do this." Um, we're getting a little ahead of ourselves, but uh, but but we even when they have to bring the boat in, uh, it seems like Quarrel's the one doing all the work, yep. picking up that boat yeah. and dragging it across the little river. So yeah, it's yeah, it's tricky. I also wanted to mention that both Bond and Felix talk about um, their beat. This is my beat. No, this is your beat. Mm. And I just think that's interesting how that will eventually play into what Doctor No says later on that Bond is just a stupid policeman, and I gotta say sometimes he's kind of acting mm-hmm. like one.
0: Mm-hmm. All right, so well, we're on the beach and we we've gone to bed, we've faded out, right? Yeah, um, faded
1: out after that unfortunate um, bit yeah. of him drinking and rolling oh, his God. eyes, and it's really,
0: really. I mean, it's shocking, you know? Yeah, it's Amos and Andy looking, I hate to say. There's just something about it that reminds me of some real old-fashioned racism, even pre-1962 racism. And it's just, man, where did this come from? I, I don't know. I just didn't get that feeling earlier in the movie.
1: There are these weird moments that seem to really be from a different kind of movie making, you know, and a different kind of attitude. Like, it's it's such a strange movie, Dr. No, because it's so modern in some places and it's so antiquated in others. Uh And I would even go so far as to say... As Bond wakes up to the sound of Underneath the Mango Tree again, wondering whether he can ever escape this song. That's how I feel every time I hear (laughs) it. it it It's such an earworm. It harkens back to those to High Noon. Right. And it harkens back to the to out of the past um, where this same song appears both both diegetically and non-diegetically throughout. And that just seems very old. Fashion to me. I think we, we we'll hear it again with Robert Altman in the in the Long Goodbye, and ultimately the Cullen brothers will make fun of it in Raising Arizona because the same song is playing everywhere, no matter what. Whether it's the muzak in the grocery store or, or you know, on the soundtrack.
0: I, I do have to make a quick confession. I um I'm a I'm a classic misunderstander of lyrics. <laughs> I always have been, and I until today I thought she says in the song that we make Bula loop soup. <laughs> Which to my, in my defense, in my defense, it is not uncommon for Jamaican songs to just randomly talk about food. That is a very common thing in Jamaican music. but I didn't realize today what exactly she meant when she says that, which is uh, which is then becomes very uh, appropriate I, I suppose, if or inappropriate, uh, considering what we're about to see and what she's saying those uh, uh, Ursula Andrus is singing those lyrics and the uh, the tawdry meaning behind them. Uh, I guess it's playing into what uh, Bond is probably thinking as he's watching. Have her.
2: you ever heard that 80s song? Every time you go away, you take a piece of me with you. I sure. used to think as a child, it was meat. M-E-A-T. And I, as a child, I'm like, yeah, yeah, if you get hungry, you've got bologna on you. You know what I mean? You bring some cold cuts, you know, a little prosciutto. I was Italian growing up. Like, you'd always have, like, this is what you do. You bring meat with you. I so was... I'm with you on this. I I can get it. <laughs>
0: Yeah, even if, even if it's something that makes absolutely – that actually makes kind of sense. I would believe – I would go along with my misunderstandings that didn't make any sense because I would assume I just didn't understand something. Uh, that just must be a turn of phrase I don't know. And I would just go with it for decades sometimes before I learned that that's not what they're well, saying. Well,
1: Monty Norman said in an interview that he asked somebody what's, some, what's patois for you know, having sex, and they told him this phrase, and he said he still doesn't know whether it's real or not. They might have been having him on, and he just –
0: there is a lot of there are a lot of slang words in Jamaican culture. <laughs> it always have been that patois is full of different things. And like when you listen to a lot of Jamaican music, like I don't as much as I used to, you will hear things that are like, "What in the world is that word?" You'll never know, and then you'll hear somebody else mention it. But they will. They use food a lot as as metaphor in Jamaican songs. Like we talked about in previous episode about uh, "Touch Me Tomato." for instance. So that there's where I was like, oh, she's there's something called bula loop soup. Uh, I'm sure that's a part of the cuisine down there. I just don't know about it. But and I
2: kind of want to try it now. Like I kind of want somebody to well, somebody make, it. make I'm it. I'm like, ooh, like I'm going to Google bula loop soup after this is done and see what I, who knows what will come up. I'm just going to throw that one out there. Um, but yeah. maybe well, a recipe <laughs> will come up too.
0: <laughs> and if it doesn't, maybe we can create one. Maybe I will create bula there loop soup. There you go. And, uh, I, don't...
1: <laughs> <laughs> I did notice that he was waking up clearly in the soundstage. There, uh, he's he's on a set, and mm-hmm. he's beautifully lit and beautifully made up, and just beautifully decked out. So that when oh, yeah. he stands up and and sings a little bit, looking off. off screen, he sings
2: well, though. Uh, it,
1: he does. I'm just gonna throw he that doesn't. in. He doesn't
2: get much love for his singing voice. That was that was in a different key. Like hey now.
1: Yeah, and he sings very well in Darby O'Gill and the Little People, too. He had a song in there, so I guess they figured, well they knew he could sing. No, I knew. So yeah, yeah.
0: Can I say one thing about the singing though? Know? Every time I watch this and he gets up and he watches her for a while, I guess it's how I'm programmed to think about Bond. I even though I know better, I th- I think he's gonna say something pseudo clever to her. Something like anything else besides just starting to sing. I always find it really disappointing when he starts singing. I always think he could have a a clever quip is in place here, you know, to surprise her, like the effect that he gets out of it. I don't know. That's a personal preference thing. But, but every time I watch, it, I'm in like, the
1: book. So that's where it comes from. Yeah, they, sure. He, he finishes well, there. It's a different song, but he, he finishes the refrain of the song and that's how he gets her attention. So I guess they're adhering to the text a little bit there.
0: Well, I, I guess that that's a good segue, Mitch. So Ursula Andress coming out of the water, Honey Ryder coming out of the water. We're going to have to talk about the differences between how it's uh, presented in the film and how it is described in the book. Um, I don't know. <laughs> well, I don't yeah, know how she's, she's naked and she precise. has nothing, nothing yeah.
1: but a nothing but a knife belt, uh, and that's also which she's is wearing. apparently
0: makes her even more erotic, according to the book. Uh, her nakedness is expounded. What, what does he say? It's exaggerated er- erotically by the belt. So the belt is sexy, apparently, uh, according to Fleming. I am really uncomfortable <laughs> when I read that part of the book. I got to tell you, it's there's so many different things about it that um, are cringy to me. And obviously, the differences, much of the differences, is just a matter of censorship, right? Obviously, we can't, in 1962, we can't have Ursula Andrews coming out of the the water completely naked. Right. But I want to know what you think about the differences, uh, uh, Mitch. Uh, uh, Doctor Funnel, have you read Doctor Now? The yes, book?
2: a while ago.
0: Okay, so let's. I would like to talk about the differences here and how they might pertain to, um, the fact someone that we haven't talked about it really at all, Mitch, is Joanna Harwood, who was one of the screenwriters of this, uh, uh, of the screenplay. How, how do we think that she fits into the different representations of women here and then this iconic moment and how it's presented on screen uh, in the movie as opposed to how it was described in the book?
1: I don't know how she describes the situation, but I know that the lore anyway is that she was basically – uh, a secretary who was helping cut and paste this, the script together with Terrence Young and that he gave her credit for that. Um, I, that's the, that's okay, the that's, story.
0: Okay. Well, let's, let's go backwards then for a second, because what I understand is that she worked for an agency in London, uh, a talent agency, but the, the head of the talent agency, the, the guy she worked for, she, she was his assistant, he went to work for 20th Century Fox, moved to California, leased his office to Harry Saltzman, who then basically expected her to continue working for him. She said, I don't just work for you automatically. He said, what would you like to do? She said, I'd like to be a screenwriter. He goes, fine, be my assistant, and I'll let you write screenplays. And she's supposedly uncredited on a lot of screenplays that he produced. And what I read was that she was integral in the in the first draft of this script. And then Wolf, but Wolf Mangle, she was told, Wolf Mankiewicz will get credit and do the final draft of this, just so you understand. That's the story I read. I also know she doesn't like the movie very much. I got a really great quote from her. She says, Dr. No is okay. It's only okay by mistake, though. I have the DVD, but it's still under cellophane. (laughs) That's what she said in like 2012, I think. I thought that was a pretty good quote. Lisa, can you shine any light on this? I don't know. You're right, Mitch. Maybe I'm reading too much into the fact that she's credited. Maybe she doesn't have any, didn't have very much say in how this was presented. I'm
2: not sure if I can shine specific light on this situation, but I think anytime we talk about women participating in filmmaking, I think... There's this idea that just because a woman is there, it it means that a she has power to make creative decisions, she may or may not have those that power, Um, she might be trumped. Um, And secondly, that she would make decisions that would be feminist. Um, And that's the reason why women have been held away and back from, you know, certain genres like action filmmaking, right? They're going to make these feminist films. And meanwhile, um, you're sort of operating within an industry and within genres and spaces that are typically sort of male centric. Um, So I'm not really sure, but I, to your point about the nakedness, and I, I, I seem to always have this, this thing that comes to mind, I would never wear a white bikini ever. Like, it's just, you know, one material that when it gets wet, there is going to be. The tendency for it to become more see-through and when she wears the 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 shirt on top of it and it gets wet you can see through it but later on and you'll get to the to the point where she talks about her sexual assault she's completely dry and it's opaque and you can't see through it and you can't see her body so i think the materiality actually matters here and i think the closest thing that you could probably get is a white bikini that is wet um that would be right. as close as possible. I don't think, I don't know if they would be able to get away with it if it was just a nude shade that might be too naked for sensors at the time. So I feel as though that is yeah. their sort of a way to bridge it. So I would I would say that the costume designer probably played an integral role. And when we think about this exit of the sea you know, Dr. No gives us two iconic introductions. The Bond James Bond moment at the beginning of this film is for is for Bond. People talk about it all the time, but this is a very notable iconic scene that if you ask fans about, you know, the women of Bond or Bond girls, whatever term you want to use, this is the scene they look towards. This woman in this, you know, this bikini with this knife walking out of the sea, singing and attracting Bond. Um, And and just another point, Um, when I teach gaze theory, Laura Mulvey's gaze theory, I use this this clip as being a good example. And so the gaze theory is basically that uh, men are the gazers in film, and then women are often presented as the objects that are gazed upon. And so uh, the the spectator is given oftentimes point of view shots from the man's perspective, gazing at the woman. And we are invited to gaze at her, having these moments of erotic contemplation. And there's a lot of binaries going on. There's man versus woman, active versus passive, subject and being an object. Um, and so that's being sort of set up in... Um, in this and part of the gaze theory as well as this notion is that they're not just these moments but these moments freeze the flow of action right they stop whatever action is taking place to give us this moment of erotic contemplation of desire before moving the narrative forward and i think it's interesting you'll get to the the second part of gazing in 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 your next episode it's interesting because you're talking about Coral and something that, that uh, you might want to think about is Coral has his moment. He is running down the beach, you know, yelling for Bon, talking about a ship that's coming. And he has a very obvious gaze moment. He looks at her. We see the point of view shot. His, his you know, eyes open, his mouth drops open, and he loses the capacity to speak. He's gawking at her. And then in this moment where like he's looking at her, Bon actually cuts into the point of view shot and blocks it. And to me, the more and more that I think of it, it's 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 the question of whose gaze is being represented Mm. in film, who who occupies who like the white woman is going to be an object of desire. And in this case, in this Bond film for the white man and Quarrel is sort of cut off from having that desiring moment go too far. And it really comes back to this notion that she is, quote unquote, Bond's girl. And that's something that I think is replicated in the novel when Um, I think when they're about to get imprisoned, there's uh, some discussion about uh, the men on Crab Key looking desiringly at at, at Honey Child Rider um, and Bond sort of like, yeah, but she's sort of mine. And it really raises this question of do we value women and specifically white women in the Bond film because of who they are narratively or are they valued because they belong to Bond in some possessive way. Mm. And I think that's something that there's there's a lot. in I've just packed in a lot in there. (laughs) No, that's great. Thank you. That's really that's really great. I,
1: I would think I would suggest that the other thing that complicates this question of the gaze, not necessarily the male gaze, but I think that there's something about the way that Terrence Young chooses to photograph Sean Connery that invites us to look at him as well, like to really fetishize him, and I think that's has to do with Terrence Young. Guy Hamilton doesn't do that. I, I don't think we get until we really until we get maybe to, to um, Casino Royale, Martin Campbell's way of looking at Daniel Craig, and really even further, uh, uh, uh-huh. further on in the Craig films, right. do we you know begin to once again present Bond as this object of the gaze. But I I, I think that that's one of the things that makes the film so. So interesting, you know, because of the way that, that, that the camera just luxuriates
0: on James Bond as well. I was just going to say, in Casino Royale, you almost get a direct callback to this, yeah. right? Only reversed, because right. you have Daniel Craig in a very similar just bottom to what her bottom her the of her bikini looks like standing in the water. So I think that was, that was very deliberate on Campbell's part, yeah. just to bring that yeah, up. Yeah,
2: and I think it is a question of, you know at least in my work, I've argued that, you know, Daniel Craig is presented as the Bond girl and through Bond girl iconography in Casino Royale. And it's women on the beach who are gazing at him. And, you know, you talk to my students and my students will tell you it's a beautiful body that, that, that you know, that is being looked at. When it comes to Sean Connery, the question is, is it there, is it being presented in, in a notion of desire? Because I think we can desire a whole bunch of bodies. Um, and, and gaze theory does not allow for that. And that's a problem. Um, but, or is it the fact that he was a bodybuilder beforehand? And so there is this history of presenting and depicting Sean Connery, um, both outside of film and, and possibly here inside a film in, in sort of like a, in a way that his body is still in some ways, a bit of a spectacle, um, and sort of in that pinup tone, um, so maybe some of that—the roots, just like how Arnold Schwarzenegger and the bodybuilders of the eighty, the hard body heroes of the eighties—they were bodybuilders before—and some of the conventions associated uh, with the built male body uh, and the physique get brought into a lot of his early films, with his with his body really being placed on display and him constantly in muscular poses. So there might be some connection or. Or, or commonality there, like the link between maybe bodybuilding and representation. Oh,
1: I think that's totally true because we're going to have the, the Hercules cycle starting as well in this period with Steve uh-huh. Reeves. And, and, and even maybe a case to be made for the way that the camera um, considers Clint Eastwood as the man with no name. Not as fetishistic as perhaps with James Bond or Hercules, but it does seem like there's something happening in movies that are presenting men a little differently. You know,
2: so I have sure, a sure. question um, about voice dubbing. So um, Ursula Andress's voice is is not in the in this film. She is dubbed by um, an actor named Von- Monica Vandercel, and Monica Vandercel actually dubs other women of the nineteen sixties, other Bond women in the films. And so I find that when my students do their film journals. They have trouble identifying the, say, the nationality of the the Bond girl because they all kind of sound the same. And they find it when they watch the films back to back a little bit confusing. Um, Did you find there to be any sort of dissonance between the image that we get of Honey Rider and then the voice that that we hear? Any thoughts on that?
1: It's hard for me because I've seen the movie so many times, you know, and I know that she's dubbed and I know that Peter Hunt made a big effort to dub these women. Uh, I think that Tanya is dubbed and I think also maybe uh, isn't Domino dubbed as well in, in Thunderball. And so he works really hard to try to find somebody with the same sort of tone in their voice. Um, but yes, I, I would say there is, an, there is a dissonance. Something's not quite right. When she speaks, that's for sure. Or sings because her lips aren't even matching up with the singing.
2: Uh-huh.
0: I'll just say that this period in film, I'm just kind of used to that. Huh? You know, to be honest, there's a lot of overdubbing in movies uh, in the 60s and sometimes on television from the 60s and 70s, too. You can, It's just something I feel like I've gotten used to. And I don't think about unless it's really poorly done. I don't really think about it that much. And I never really thought about it. As a matter of fact, until we started talking about this film and studying this film, I didn't know. So uh, it, it's never bothered me before. And I, I think guess.
2: there's a difference between good dubbing and bad dubbing. So you look at the way that. Um some of the imported you know kung fu films uh that came through the kung fu phrase phase and people oftentimes mock them and they laugh at them and anytime i teach them i'm like don't laugh it's just poor dubbing like it doesn't take away from what we're seeing but there's that 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 disconnect from you know the 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 performers speaking and then whatever gets sort of uh dubbed in and i think it's a really good point to see that it wasn't uncommon for dubbing to happen in Bond films for both men and women on screen um, in the 1960s or for, for this practice to happen for imported uh, films. But I think subtitles have taken, obviously taken over um, that happening except on Netflix where you see uh, dubbing tends to be very, very prominent.
0: Yeah. And I think it's that Kung Fu, the heavy Kung Fu movie watching of my youth also. I, it, it, I like Mm -hmm. it. I, I, and it's not a joke yeah. to me either. I mean, every once in a while, it'll come off kind of funny. But for the most part, it's not a joke to me. It's just how those movies are. For a long time, I mean, how many uh, public domain tapes did I own of movies that had just horrible dubbing, but that was so... made me happy I don't know I never I never thought it was bad necessarily it was just what we got and I enjoyed the movie so much that it didn't matter Italian
1: cinema at this point everything was dubbed right I mean they're shooting their films silently and so they're they're dubbing not only multiple languages but multiple actors and I think I've mentioned before that blood and black lace Paul freeze does three different voices in the movie and it's really disconcerting (laughs) because these three characters sound exactly alike and that's because it's the same guy doing the voice
0: so yeah it's pretty it's pretty weird I will say on the subject of laughing at, at um, bad overdubbing, uh, oftentimes it's the, actually the translation that's the that's the funny. Sometimes the very poor translation is what you can tell that that's not really what. They, that they I know said the there. Hong
1: Kong movie. Sometimes the that'll movies get a laugh.
0: That definitely, it Shogun Assassin. I'm a massive Lone Wolf and Cub fan, right? And then you get the Shogun Assassin films, which are the English dubbed mashup versions, and obviously. Made famous by Wu Tang Clan, uh, and then later a little bit by Quentin Tarantino in the Kill Bill films. Sometimes you can tell that they just they just mistranslated something poorly, and there's no way in this dramatic moment that that guy would say something like that. And occasionally that'll get a little laugh, but uh, otherwise, I did, I like overdubbing. I don't know, and, and like I said, I'm so used to it being a child of the 70s and 80s and raised on sitcoms and and B movies in the afternoon. I just don't notice it that much.
2: I kind of like multiple voices. So I am not a big reader. I I don't get pleasure from reading books. Um, I feel as though like, especially with, you know, the work that we do, we have to do a lot of reading and that just sort of, you know, taints it as an act i'd rather watch movies but i listen to a lot of audiobooks and i like listening to like detective and crime stories typically written by women and performed by women and so you have one one voice actor really doing multiple characters and giving you the entire storyline and i've thought many times um and i'm deep into it right they're going into it i'm buying and i'm believing it how talented you have to be uh to be able to give so many different characters and flip in and out of it right as you're reading uh the storyline and moving forward and i think there's a lot of respect that doesn't get given to people who do voiceover work or 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 that type of of um where they start impersonating different types of characters it is a talent and i don't have that talent Um, and i tend to admire people who have skills that i don't but it really it takes a really talented person to do it well
0: Absolutely. I'm named after a voiceover artist, an old friend of the family, John Jessup. Mm -hmm. And I've always been raised to, uh, my dad would point out, that's John Jessup right there. That voice you're hearing is (laughs) is John, Uncle John. And uh, uh, I've always, I've been raised to uh, uh, respect them. And my son and I listen to a lot of Star Wars novels Mm -hmm. in the car, Audible. And there's that one, I can't remember his name right now. There's the one guy that reads all those books and he does every alien voice and every... Uh, he, every female voice, sometimes I'll go, man, maybe you shouldn't have tried that one, (laughs) but, uh, but he's so good. And yeah, it is. It's an amazing craft. And, uh, I think it gets dismissed sometimes because I've talked to, to John Jessup, my family friend. It's not as easy as people (laughs) make it out to. Some people think, oh yeah, what a job. You just walk in and say a few things and you leave. And I suppose that's true of maybe celebrities that Mm -hmm. do that. Uh, but no, these, he goes in and reads books. Like three at a time over a period of a week, you know it's not easy work at all, and you have to do multiple takes. And so, yeah, good. I'm glad we're doing a shout out do to you the voice have art action
1: between um, a male reader who then has to do female voices versus a female re- reader who has to do male voices is one more or less uh, convincing or disconcerting for either of you.
0: Oh, it really depends uh, on the performance, but sometimes, like I said, this. The guy that does the Star Wars books, it will come off. It'll sound a little bit like too close to a Monty Python voice or something, which I love that. But that's for comedy, and so, but sometimes in the, it'll be a real serious moment in the book, and he'll it'll sound a little bit. I think I think there's a tendency when a male is doing a female voice just because of the way things have been that it sounds a little bit condescending sometimes. Like oh, that's not how women sound at all. I don't know. You know what? To be honest, they don't. I don't think they do the. At least in the books I listen to, they don't do the male to or female to male as often. They usually have uh, different artists in those books.
1: But Lisa, you said you were listening to some crime films where or crime books where there's a female reader yeah. who's doing all the voices, right? So she must yeah. Be yeah. Doing and it's interesting too, right?
2: because, like, even when we think about the way the way that we sometimes mock the way that women sound and I know men do it, but women do it as well and use some high pitched voice. And it's, it's, it's ridiculous and overly dramatic and and it's dismissive. Right. And so there might actually be a difference of hearing, um, a man who, you know, is reading it and, and he go, and he might not be trying to go there, but just because there's such a social tendency for that to happen, that it might not hit the way that it should. Um, Whereas I find it interesting when you have a a female voice actor giving me multiple female voices that I can tell apart where I'm like, whoa, how did you figure that out? Mm -hmm. And convincing me that there is some sort of uh, lower tone and lower register for the the men, but it's not done in a mocking fashion because rarely do we just socially in, in a sense sort of like utilize our lower tones because when you think about it, like, authority in terms of voice the lower your tone the more authority you typically are presumed to have like Darth Vader is scary because it's you know I am your father but if you were to take oh whoever the actual the actual actor was who was throwing up the lines have you seen that yeah with or David
1: you- Prowse's voice oh, yeah, yeah. Prowse, David Prowse, like, that's yeah. not
2: scary right and even Oprah Winfrey when she does reads documentaries use the lower register so I think that there, there's a lot to do tonally with how we sort of Connote authority and respect, um, and and that's separate from whatever the qualities the actual actor is bringing uh, to the table. But I just seem to prefer, since I, I feel as though I'm inundated in an industry, and I study action films for a living. So it's it's oftentimes a lot of men and their perspectives and voices and images, and that's well and good. But sometimes I just like to counter that or balance that with. Um, these narratives of women killing people I guess. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now that I think about it, but um, just, it's, it's interesting to just have like a different stream, different voice and different way that things are conceptualized.
1: You know, I was watching uh, Mad Max Fury road and was happened to switch on the audio description of the film. Mm-hmm. And it is one of the most precise and vivid descriptions that I have ever heard it's almost like my screenwriting students need to do this listen to this because it only describes what can be seen and it does it with such precision it's really really beautiful so if you want a weird distraction next time you watch Mad Max Fury Road switch on the descriptor and listen to that because it's really something
2: and it is you know I I teach that in my uh, female heroism in Hollywood course in the fall and it is a movie that I mean, when I first started, when you first start the movie, I have trouble with sort of the the, the way that the, are they mad boys, wild boys, metal boys, whatever they are, um, are represented where I'm like, it's a little disconcerting. But that is a movie that is well conceptualized, well visualized. And I think what the vision was and what we get it certainly is attained like it's a very powerful film visually and of course the soundtrack's amazing and so i think that is something that might be a really good exercise for for your students to really get that sense of how that level of description can really help to actualize a vision to be that specific and to to give that type of direction so i i do love that film yeah so. it's
1: great to, i teach that one as well in a, a ancient concepts of the, a hero and and people really respond to that movie very very strongly and it's in, and what it's in great- and it's in the women's warrior section of that course too so yeah
2: what that's a great course
1: yeah it's really fun it's pretty much um we pretty much stick with classical greek stuff chinese stuff and japanese stuff with a little bit i think we do la femme nikita which we tie into pygmalion but yeah it's um fun to teach and it's so great to turn these kids on to chinese cinema and come drink with me and all those movies yeah
2: pepe chang lover
1: well thank you so much for uh joining us this has been a real pleasure i'm I'm, i've really enjoyed having you on the show
2: thank you i had so much fun
1: Uh, and lisa can you tell us where we can find you out there on the internets
2: uh, I am on Twitter at Dr. Lisa Funnel. I am on Instagram at Dr. Lisa Funnel. You can find me my webpage, lisafunnel.com. I believe I'm on Facebook, Dr. Lisa Funnel. I think that's all of my social media. So please feel free to engage with me there. Love talking with you.
0: All right. Well, that's, that's going to do it for this week on 007x7. 007 7. Uh, make sure to come over to our Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash alien minute. We have some more uh, uh, episodes coming on over there. Uh, Hell, when I I mention Alien Minute, if you've never listened to our show Alien Minute and you like the movies Alien and Aliens, come over and listen to us talk about them one minute at a time when we were crazy people and did it that way. Um, But come over and listen to some more episodes over on the Patreon page or we'll see you next week over here at 007x7.